This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome back to Transparency, everyone. Uh, This week, um, we're happy to uh, be joined by Addison, um, who I've been following on on Twitter for a little while. Addison, you're... um, you're, you're a trans guy, um, and I know that we share some some similar views, but you're also a psychology major. And um, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on today was, was you know, some of the things that you've been saying on Twitter. And he said, you know, you feel like you're at a point where you feel ready to, to speak out about some things and and share some of, of your concerns. So welcome. Um, welcome to Thank Transparency. You. Thank you. I appreciate the, uh, the honor of being on. It's great to to get to know you. Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit about um, what what your story has been with uh, gender dysphoria and your transition. Yeah, um, I feel like you know it used to be the majority of cases, but it seems like the minority now that I'm I'm pretty much the cookie cutter case of like you know I've I've known forever that you know I was supposed to be you know male and you know that's just how I always viewed myself I tried to convince others you know the same kind of thing I've always like you know had that distress since I I think the earliest I can maybe picture is maybe like three or four that I uh actually like verbally expressed this um you know distress or this uh, identity I guess or you know however you want to word that um but yeah I've pretty pretty much been standard like I didn't have necessarily like a um, transition because I've always just kind of dressed this way and acted this way and you know the only thing is one day I you know asked to be called a different name and you know everything else kind of just flowed with it you know my parents weren't exactly like surprised or anything so it's um, yeah I, I mean I transitioned when I was maybe like if medically a 19 started hormones at 19 I had surgery at 20 and again this year at 27 um and uh, I think I changed my name about I was maybe like 11 or 12 so when I started like officially like you could call it a social transition even though like I didn't like change anything like visually or anything um but yeah I, I feel pretty standard like um you know, I didn't like find out and when I was like 40 or anything, you know, so that's, that's the base of my story, the skeleton of it. Do your parents um, remember you like as a young kid of being really, really gender nonconforming? Was that really obvious to them? Yeah. Um, I, I think I was trying to cut my hair at about like four or five. Um, I had a really terrible bowl cut for a long time because they wouldn't let me have a like short, short hair. <laughs> um but uh yeah I've always like dressed masculinely I would like refuse to put on the girls clothes and um you know my my mom looking back she says that I she thought I was just gonna be like a lesbian or something which she was okay with she's very open-minded but you know my dad very close-minded to that very you know throughout my childhood would be like 
you know, very critical of um, assuming that I was going to be a lesbian, even though I've insisted that that wasn't true, which I think is just kind of confusing for a lot of my family, but you know, they're, they're pretty accepting for the most part. You, you sort of like uh, almost in a social transition when you were quite young, like preteen age, was that like something that like you did at, at school? Like, were you kind of like, kind of existed as one of the boys or was it more like a, just a, like a name and aesthetic thing? How did that work functionally? Yeah, honestly, I don't think that the boys really cared. I, I think I remember playing with them and like uh, about preschool, we would like chase the girls around and they didn't like question it at all. Like, I don't think that the boys really like paid attention to that until maybe about like middle school. Then they started getting weird about me playing with them or like, I don't know, being around them. And I kind of like, I was super social as a child. I had a lot of friends and they're all boys. You know, I'd go to their sleepovers and their birthday parties and um, you know, we'd hang out outside of school and uh, in school, play Pokemon and all that stuff. And I think in middle school is when I started to kind of feel that like being kind of ostracized for looking this way. And, you know, that's what, about the time that I tried using a new name. And um, I think probably about puberty is when they kind of took a step away. But previous to that, they nobody really cared. You know, there was some bullying, but they're not my friends. <laughs> what, how did you make sense of that experience when you were younger? Um, I tried to, I don't know. I didn't really think about it like in depth. Um, I just, was very insistent that I was a boy no matter what I try to convince others that I was um, like, I'd, honestly, I'm glad no one called like CPS or something. Cause I would go around telling people that when I was a baby, like that my boy privates were cut off or something, you know, I'd try to convince people. <laughs> um, I'm glad no like adults overheard that cause that'd be concerning. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I just, I didn't think about it too hard. I just knew that, you know, like I, I'm, a, I'm a boy. I, you know, I was very in denial that I would ever go through like a, you know, female puberty. Like I, I think when I was like eight, you know, my mom told me, all right, you're going to have to start wearing a shirt, you know, soon. And, and I was just like, I remember standing in the mirror, like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, just looking at myself, be like, no, that's not going to happen to me. And, you know, I just, I kind of pushed it away and kind of like denied that I would that I was anything other than like the other males. Um, obviously puberty kind of was a little bit of a slap in the face in that regard, but <laughs> that's about how I made sense of it until I think puberty, um, middle school, I was put in therapy and, um, the therapist, uh, you know, she was like, Oh, well, how do you feel about, um, when people like call you a girl? And I was like, Oh, I don't like that. And, um, you know, especially when people, tell other people that I'm a girl and, and all that. Um, and she was like, Oh, it's called outing. And I was like, no, that's, that's for like gay people or that's, that's not me. And, you know, that's, that's kind of when I started to think about like what words might be used to describe me and how other people might have this same kind of experience. And I just like, it took me a while to like accept that I was part of like some other group. I just kind of like, you know, try to see myself as just a boy. Like, that's just how it's kind of always been to me. Is that how the other kids responded to you? I mean, I know you said some of them bullied you, but. Um, yeah, for the most part, they, they're they pretty accepting that, you know, I 
there was an occasional like um kid who i you know wasn't friends with who would be like oh you're a girl and um i'd just be like no i'm just a boy with long hair and um or like people on the outside would you know i think maybe i was been about kindergarten like people called me like a lesbian and i didn't know what that meant you know so i was like no you're a lesbian like to these <laughs> boys <laughs> you know as kids you're like no no you are yeah <laughs> So like I don't know I I feel like at least my friends who would play Pokemon and you know go run around the jungle gym like they were they didn't think anything of it they didn't like make a deal of it um it was more the you know maybe like the older kids I guess would probably be the ones that were yelling at me and you know towards towards puberty it definitely got a little worse you know when I experienced the you know like homophobia parts of it uh you know, when they assumed that I was like, you know, a butch lesbian or something, like definitely, definitely experienced some hate in that regard. Um, you know, until I, you know, I switched schools through high school and went completely like stealth. Like my mom got my name and gender marker changed at the school before it was legal yet. Um, so I didn't have to like tell any teachers, no other students knew. So I kind of like solved my own problem there. <laughs> How old were you then? I would say 17. Okay. Yeah. They just, you know, I, I went into, I remember I was in a, I was in band and I went into, uh, you know, the band camp day and they were like, Oh, look, you're going to be my freshman. And I was like, I'm a senior. And <laughs> that was about the end of the conversation. <laughs> you know, they didn't, they honestly, I'm kind of shocked. No one like questioned me. I, I came out to a, a friend like a year ago. Um, and she had no idea and i was like really we went to high school together i was not medically transitioned she was like yeah nobody knew like kind of shocked me a little bit at, at what point did you learn about uh, you know other trans people and and the possibility of transitioning um i want to say it was about middle school um since my my dad wasn't very accepting he threw me into therapy a bunch of times and uh, he'd take me out every time that they disagreed with him. Uh, so like there was one therapist who was probably the only one to pick up on like what was going on um, and like addressed it with me saying like, oh, there's these words like transgender and, you know, like out, uh, yeah, the person who, you know, referred to me being called a girl is like outing and um, just things like that. I I only saw her one visit because my dad didn't like it. Um, but, you know, kind of like at that point, I was like, oh, there are, there are words for this. And I kind of like thought about it. And, um, you know, I didn't I didn't really like adopt it right away. I um, I just kind of like knew of it. And like when I saw references in like media and stuff, it kind of like, you know, would pop up and I kind of learned about things that way. I was kind of a dumb isolated kids so I didn't like google anything you know I didn't like go like what's wrong with me on the internet you know uh I just I don't know I I, I was very much in like denial that I was like ever a girl or female and you know I wanted to keep it that way and calling myself trans kind of would have to like cement that in a way that like oh I was female and so I think that was very difficult and then when you did make the choice, well, how long was it between that um, appointment with that therapist where she gave you that word um, and then he sounds like you took that away and, and thought about that for a while. And then, so how long, how much time passed 
between that point and the point where you decided to actually um, seek medical interventions? Um, I want to say I was, I was probably about 12 when I went into that therapy session, um, you know, and I, I didn't seek medical transition until about 19 because I, I physically couldn't because my dad would never like consented. He didn't want me to change my name or anything, but um, I also didn't really like know the process until I met like other people. And I really didn't meet any other trans people until I was, yeah, about 18, 19 uh, through other like friends. And, you know, then I learned about the medical process through that, but um, I think I kind of accepted the uh, trans label, maybe about 18. Um, so it's probably about, yeah, six years of kind of pushing it away after like hearing about it just being like, no, no, like, you know, I'm just a male and there must be something like physically wrong with me. And, um, you know, thinking like, I, I remember <laughs> it was stupid, I was a stupid, cringy teen. And I, I would tell people like, oh, it, well, I tell poten potential girlfriends, I, I would tell them that I was just, you know, uh, intersex, you know, I, that's just how I'd describe it. I didn't feel comfortable saying like trans or anything. I just, I very much avoided that. I, I didn't want to be, you know, seen as female in any regard. And I feel like that was, you know, kind of cementing that I was at least once female and that I just couldn't, couldn't latch onto that at the time. I used to have that same hesitation where I, I, I felt like admitting or calling myself trans. I've far moved on from this, but uh, back in the day, I, I, I viewed calling myself trans as basically admitting that I wasn't really a man, right? Like I was acknowledging yes. that I was yes. female and there was something that felt wrong about even accepting the, the word trans because it was admitting I wasn't what I thought I was. It's, yeah, it's, it's really convoluted, but yeah, uh, difficult for people who haven't been that down that to, to, to know what that, yeah. Well, that weird mental process is because it's definitely there. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly how I describe it. And like, you know, through, through media, I, I had heard about like, not like in depth, cause I didn't like go searching for these things. Uh, you know, I'd heard about like the concept of like sex changing and I just like instantly was like, oh yeah, I'll do that. You know, I didn't like go into any other detail. I was just like, yeah, I, I just kind of assumed that that would happen eventually. You know, I didn't like learn about it or anything until I was maybe about 18 when I met other people that had gone through it. And I was like, wow, like, you know, it's a real like process that you can do. And so I just did it, you know. As far as the, the process that you went through, um, like, did you, were you assessed or what, what was that process like for you? Yeah. So this was about 2014. Um, so as far as I knew that most people were getting assessed first and all my friends had so that's that's where I started I didn't even find a doctor I didn't find like surgeons or anything I just had a bad habit of not googling things I guess uh, so the the only the only thing they gave me was uh, the name of their uh, psychiatrist so or therapist um, I'm not entirely sure uh, but yeah they gave me the name of the, the therapist and so that's where I started I just made an appointment with her and you know she um like you know gave me all these resources like oh this is how you can change your name and this is how you can get medical treatment she did like a, a pretty thorough assessment i would say like looking back um i think that you know she did a really good job and she explained why we needed this process and um she actually explained you know because I, I was curious like oh well you know why can't i just go get 
hormones like why can't I just go do that and you know she explained how um, some people might believe that they're trans um, when they're not or they have um, feelings of like distress that might cause them to want to transition when they shouldn't um, you know I was like oh okay I didn't know about that like I didn't know people did that and you know it only took me a couple sessions she wrote my letter and you know I got my medical care from there and you know I've gone back to her for every letter I've had to get since like I've never gone to inform consent I just I just won't do that to myself um do you remember what kinds of things she covered in the assessment yeah so she she covered people who uh grew up in really homophobic families who might feel that um, the only out and the only way to be accepted is to transition so they would be quote-unquote straight um you know that's obviously not a very good reason to medically transition um there is also you know people with um sexual trauma um physical abuse that was related to sexual characteristics um there was other things like fetishes i don't think she really covered that one a whole lot because i was still pretty young and i think it would have been a little bit awkward um but she very much emphasized like the uh the abuse history and like the um, growing up in a homophobic environment uh, she gave me like some examples that she had seen um you know not by name or anything but um just sort of like how she would see um like men come in who were abused for being you know gay and they're like i need to fix this you know i'm going to become a woman so that i can um, date men because i clearly can't change my sexuality so you know i'm going to become a woman and i'll be straight my family will accept me you know those kind of things so it was it's very interesting that that's kind of coming up now when she had told me about that before like yeah 2014 almost 10 years ago now so it sounds like she it was on her radar that that there's different motivations for transitioning and she had seen that in her practice absolutely i uh i saw her again this this last year to get my letter for uh hysterectomy and you know we actually talked about it again and you know she she had mentioned that there was a lot of uh, detransition and you know she was seeing a lot of that and um that she felt that maybe the process that's happening with uh, providing care is not very responsible today and you know we we really connected actually you know she gave me her like personal phone number and like we emailed for a while and we just chatted on on zoom like this because uh, it was like during the height of covid and um you know she told me that she was gonna retire and she gave me all of her books she gave me um every single like trans transgender conference books um let's see the, the i think they're the god there's so many there's like 20 of them like i think they're the w path books like with all the like studies in them and um, the guidelines and stuff from like I think they go back to like 1996 or something like she gave me a ton of books and um, you know was very excited that I was very open to the Isaiah these ideas and kind of recognizing these things so it made me feel pretty good she uh, uh, I'm really sad that she retired because and you know more people are gonna maybe go into informed consent or get improper evaluations you know so just kind of mourning the loss of a sane voice i guess 
I, I wonder if, if part of her motivation for, for retirement is that she can't do the assessments anymore. Uh, it seems to be the case that, um, you know, you know, she's she's basically uh, Aaron, you probably have more in, more insight into this. But like like essentially, if you're you're a gatekeeper, then there's no there's no job for you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you can't do it ethically, it's kind of like, yeah, you can't really keep practicing. I kind of wonder that I, I... I I thought about kind of asking, but I didn't feel like it was appropriate at the time to ask like, oh, why are you retiring? Um, (laughs) But I imagine at least with the uh, amount of like people seeking care today that she's probably, she was probably experiencing the influx of those, uh, those kind of patients. But she, I mean, she also worked with like other kinds of patients too. And she was a little bit older, but I don't know, like maybe her mid fifties. So not really that like not like she, she's not practicing in her 70s or anything so I, I do wonder if that has some sort of influence like she didn't want to want the ethical dilemma of turning people away every day it sounds like um for you the assessment process was okay and wasn't um super uncomfortable for you did you find it helpful in any way i did find it helpful um you know not only did i get a lot of resources from her that i didn't know about um previously like how to um, find a doctor and how to get on hormones, how to find surgeons, how to change your name. Um, like she had resources for everything. She had support groups. Um, so I don't regret going, even though I, I didn't go any of those support groups, but, um, you know, like she was willing to talk about other things. I, I only saw her for a couple of visits. Um, but I definitely don't rec, I don't like, um, not recommend. No. Uh, I don't regret going at all. Um, you know, it's a good ease of mind that you know you have somebody who knows the medical field and you know people practicing, and they can get you into like good, responsible, and educated care. Like the doctor that she recommended me, I'm I still see her. You know, like eight years later, and you know she's really great. And I I know friends who never went and got evaluated that never like spoke to a professional and they went through doctor after doctor just going through like terrible care and you know Planned Parenthood and like nightmare doctors and I seem like the only one who's got like good care that I'm around so you know it's I think it's pretty important to seek that vital resource so you you know if it is the right decision for you you have more resources after that and you're better off for it like I don't I don't really see a reason to ever like avoid it you know it's not a painful process and i got a lot out of it that's the part i find confusing about this push to eliminate that you know that thorough assessment or, or any therapy beforehand is like what are the demonstrated harms of of an assessment process like no one has really been able to articulate that i'm not aware of any studies about that where people were harmed by an assessment process or by going and seeing a counselor. I mean, are there are there people who aren't great counselors out there? Sure. Like so maybe maybe they just had somebody that they didn't feel comfortable with or wasn't terribly skilled or, you know, said something that was hurtful. I mean, um, completely unrelated to trans stuff. I mean, all kinds of people have a negative experience with a therapist, but but don't then turn around and say, well, all therapy is a bad idea and I discourage it all people from going to a therapist. So it's, mm-hmm. it, it, I find it puzzling that despite the fact that there aren't any demonstrated harms or documented harms of an assessment process, that there's this push to 
eliminate it altogether as though it's somehow harmful and mm. and oppressive and, and offensive for us i i see that a lot too um you know i one of my closest friends uh who's be transitioned now you know i was there for the whole process of transitioning and it was very like you know i i recommended my therapist at the time the, the one who i saw for my letter and you know they wouldn't go to it um i wasn't very like versed in like politics or you know trans ideology or anything like i you know didn't really know a whole lot of trans people um so i just kind of uh against my better judgment was like you know okay you you lead your process and i will help you um so they they wanted to avoid therapists at all costs saying that they're um like gatekeepers and you know i didn't really know what that meant at the time this is like i want to say this is 2015 maybe 2016 that seems to be exactly when the when the shift happened was was around 2015 with the massive boom yeah yeah uh yeah they they avoided the care and like they you know didn't really identify as non-binary yet they definitely went in that direction um quickly after starting hormones and you know i i helped them get on hormones um we went to a informed consent informed consent clinic um like i drove them there we went to the doctor's office together and the doctor you know of the informed consent clinic she was like you know i don't think this is right for you you know I, i feel like you're maybe like a lesbian or you're you know this just isn't right for you and you know he got really upset and i don't know what changed her mind but she gave him his first shot that day um after you know saying that this isn't probably right for you still went ahead and did it um but they were you know my friend was so upset about being questioned um that you know they never went back to that clinic and just went to Planned Parenthood instead and had a plethora of issues there um with that system and you know end up getting top surgery unfortunately um and then you know detransition maybe i want to say like two years ago so there's maybe four years of identifying as trans and then non-binary and then you know is still kind of coming out of that and you know they're they're also kind of considering you know speaking up about it and you know making other people like know like what this experience is and like um to seek therapy because that's that was their main thing that they talked about is how they wish they had just gone to the therapist like i suggested and um i remember them telling me that they they thought that um i wouldn't think they were trans enough if they told me exactly how they felt about transitioning um that maybe they weren't wanting to grow facial hair they weren't wanting to um, have this or that change they just wanted a deeper voice and like to lose body fat and um they just didn't feel that anyone would think they were trans enough if they were you know open about their feelings and you know it's kind of a kind of a tragedy that that's the view that therapy has that you can't be open with them because they're just gonna like slap you away and like that's totally not true they're gonna work with you they're gonna you know they're gonna be like oh this isn't right for you go away they'd be like you know maybe this isn't right for you right now let's let's explore this you know they're gonna talk to you they're gonna sit there they're gonna do their job as a therapist you know so it's it just kind of blows my mind that like that can even be a thought that like oh these therapists are evil and they're just gonna like 
slap you across the face or something. Yeah, there's such a distrust for care providers. Um, and, and it really comes, I think, because I, I wonder if people, I think people pick that up from the culture, uh, from the trans culture, because they hear so many people saying that, right? That, oh, you need, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're gatekeepers and they're paternalistic or, you know, whatever the community says that, that really, I think, sort of cultivates this atmosphere of, of distrust for any care provider. Mm-hmm. Does, yeah, your, I, does your friend in hindsight wish that that therapist had, had kind of gotten through and, and had not started? Yeah, it wasn't even a, a therapist they saw. It was just the informed consent doctor, the one who prescribed them the hormones. And um, they wished they had gone to the therapist because I, I recommended my therapist because she was great and I had all these resources and, you know, um, but he, they, they're going by the date now. Um, they refused to kind of... Um, I don't know, even be open to the idea of therapy being like, I've been in therapy before. It wasn't helpful for me. They gave me this diagnosis. I didn't like that. And, you know, they would just throw me in a mental hospital and, um, you know, just all these things that I was like, I've, you know, I've been to therapists before. I've never had that experience. And, you know, it's just, they were very involved with the online spaces and I wasn't. So I really, I feel like if I, if I had been involved in the online spaces, I would have like maybe known a little better that like, where this is coming from i was just you know kind of blown away that this person was so adverse to every like suggestion that i thought was positive and they you know were a very negative person for a very long time and you know i think that they're finally after having detransitioned for a while kind of come around and you know i've started seeing some like positive changes and you know it's i think they're seeming a lot healthier than they've ever been before so i'm at least that's come out of this experience, even if it's not like ideal. And now you're studying psychology. Yeah, um, major psychology and a minor in biology. Um, so I, I feel like I've always been everyone's therapist. So I feel like it was kind of like, you know, destiny at this point, because, you know, I've always been the one to try to help all my friends. You know, I've helped several people like with their transitioning stuff, even if it's you know not worked out for everybody and you know i i don't typically do that anymore for i think good reason um but i uh you know people have always come to me and you know i I, i've always taken an interest especially in personality disorders Uh, that's like my top thing that i want to study um i I don't really know if i want to work with trans patients eventually i want to maybe go into like clinical psychology is what i'm aiming for um, I was going to be a psychiatrist, but a psychiatrist who I wanted to mentor me said it wasn't worth it. So I decided against that. <laughs> I was like, would you do it again? He said, no. Don't do <laughs> so I, I guess clinical psychology and maybe going to research. I, I, I keep being torn about whether or not I want to research more into like these experiences with gender dysphoria or I'm not. I'm not really sure because, you know, I, I just part of me hopes that the trend just dies away and everyone goes back to normal. And but I'm like, I don't know if that will without, you know, research like substantiating other things other than the popular opinion. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see research on, you know, different kinds of gender dysphoria, you know, because obviously there's not just one. People seem to think it's like a synonym for being trans and it's, 
it's not gender dysphoria is a symptom of being trans it's not the entire experience you know you can be dysphoric and not trans you know i think we've seen a lot of those cases recently um and people seem to gloss over that for whatever reason what's called gender dysphoria is it has become really watered down like um when i when i've used the word and I'm, and I'm trying to shift this because it causes confusion but when i've used the word i specifically mean that that incongruence that some of us felt mm. and these days i mean when you take the word literally you know like dysphoria just means distress so any any gender distress now gets called gender dysphoria and it's mm -hmm. it's really muddy muddy the waters i think i mean just in terms of like different experiences that not every distress with your body and not every distress with being your sex it necessarily means that you have this this experience of incongruence mm -hmm. I, I think it's i think one of the hard things is also figuring out is is this multiple kinds of gender dysphoria or are there just a lot of mistaken cases of gender dysphoria um you know like are these people who are experiencing like you know the result of sexual trauma like is that a form of gender dysphoria to feel this disgust for their bodies and you know to have this you know want to be the opposite sex for you know various reasons like can that be considered a form of gender dysphoria because you only need two of the seven or eight criteria to be you know considered gender dysphoric so it's it's really hard to say like you know would this be considered the differential diagnosis or is this you know would this also be considered gender dysphoria or is this just you know a mistaken case it kind of aligns and you know it, it's not quite there you know I, I think this it's too ambiguous and i don't think that's helping anybody yeah the, the criteria is really vague mm -hmm. and there's and it's um I, like when i was training to do hormone readiness assessment there wasn't a lot of training in that differential diagnosis piece like they there's acknowledgement that we should be doing that, but not a lot of guidance about, well, what is that exactly? Like what other, what other conditions could look like gender dysphoria, you know, like autism, for example. So I was really mm -hmm. happy to see the new um, W's past standards of care have more emphasis on um, the autism spectrum and, and um, recommendations that clinicians who do the assessments have competency in, um, in, you know, understanding autism or, or make a referral to an autism spe um, specialist to, you know, because there is, there does seem to be so much overlap between autism symptoms and, um, and gender dysphoria. I kind of wonder about autism too, because I've tried to look into these studies and, you know, I think it's some of them that I've seen linked to me because I've, you know, I'm always asking questions. I mean, critical of, you know, things that people say with like, you know that are definitive um you know i kind of i'm starting to kind of wonder if a lot of these cases are also autism or if this is another like um thing that's just becoming really popular like you know the kind of a fad that people are getting like evaluated for for these conditions and kind of like you know sort of dramatizing some of the symptoms i guess that's not maybe not quite what i mean but um you know i i just kind of wonder about what these autism assessments are because some of the studies have been like um you know like a, a short survey um for autistic features 
um, and associating that with, you know, gender dysphoria or trans identity. And, you know, so I, I kind of wonder, like, what's, what's your experience with those studies? Like, have you seen um, kind of like, are, are they sort of assessing like people who are um, actually diagnosed or is it more um, symptomatic based? The studies about that, the, um, the, the link between gender dysphoria and autism? Yeah, I just, yeah. I'm just curious. Um, I'm not, you know, really deeply familiar. Like I know that I've, I've read some of those studies, but it's been a while since I've read them, you know, showing the correlation. Um, but yeah, that's, it's not a topic that, that I know a lot about. I'd really like to, um, have a, an autism specialist on our show at, at some point to really, to talk about that and, and some of the correlations. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of speculation, like what is that correlation about? And, so there and there's different ways of of reading it i mean is it that i mean we do know especially autistic um girls do tend to have more kind of ma more masculine presentation i mean i've got a study on actually on my desktop that shows when they matched facial features of girls with autism that um that they showed more masculine features masculine typical features um, and some of the so social patterns. I mean, Aaron and I have talked about this in other podcasts too, that, that sometimes, um, you know, people with autism, they don't always pick up on social cues in the same way. They don't always, um, they're often more gender non-conforming for that reason that they're, they're just not as tuned into trying to conform to, you know, socially to what they're, they're seeing. And, and so I can understand like how the symptoms of autism could very easily be, be mistaken when you feel kind of, um, that you're having trouble making social connections with people and bonding and and that your style of communicating or expressing yourself might be more male typical um, then there's other other readings of that I mean so that one I completely understand and, and agree with another reading um, is the, the connection between autism and um, testosterone that there's some wonder if um, testosterone exposure um, as a developing fetus, if does that have any impact on brain development in these and social features and physical features? Um, and we do know that autism um, does, there is a link between autism and, and testosterone. So that's one potential reading of, of the correlation. And then, and then you've got, you know, the, the, the Jack turbans of the world who um, interpret that as like, like an acquired autism that isn't, he says it's not necessarily a true autism, but you acquire, you know, certain social difficulties as a result of the gender dysphoria. So it's a bit of a chicken and an egg sort of <laughs> dilemma, right? That which, which comes first, like, is this an organic autism or is it, and that's how I always interpreted myself, which I'm rethinking now, but I always interpreted it as the gender dysphoria is primary. And because that caused so many, so much discomfort socially that I did, I became avoidant of, of social interaction as I got older. And so I always thought, well, I've acquired some of these autistic appearing traits because they did seem to get worse and worse as I got older. I mean, I, as a little kid, I remember having lots of friends and I socialized fairly easily. And then it got more and more socially difficult as I got older. So I don't know, it's not necessarily one, one thing either. It could be multiple factors why we're seeing a correlation.
I was actually um, just just watching a presentation today who, who, with a woman who specializes in um, autism, especially as it appears in girls and women. And uh, typically it's identified in boys much younger. And then they're like, oh, in girls, it only appears in teenagehood. Why is that? And that's because social interaction becomes a lot more complicated for girls in teenagehood, whereas it doesn't for boys. It basically socialization pretty much stays the same. Um, but in uh, social how social networks work uh, between females become much, much more nuanced and complex and interpersonal and heightened, like highly empathetic. And people with uh, autism spectrum traits have a really hard time adapting to that and can kind of feel completely like a foreigner amongst their own their own sex class and just like Aaron was saying I'm starting to realize I'm wondering if if I, I really um, what I've always called social dysphoria uh, is much more a case of a, yeah just the, just that chicken and egg thing did I become socially awkward because I was really supposed to be a boy or you know is my my uh, autism spectrum traits making me you know always made it very difficult to socialize and interact as if I were a girl um, so I'm yeah I'm re becoming really really curious about about that. I know there have been certainly a lot of studies connecting autism and gender dysphoria. And somebody we want to get on here um, as Hakeem Maxwell, he's a, a, a psychologist out of the UK who, who did uh, a lot of support groups with uh, gender dysphoric transition, detransition people. And the um, the autism diagnoses were off the charts as far as the, you know, the, the, the ratio of the people in those groups. Um, and and I think from from his it, it seemed like people, it was more so people who were previously diagnosed who were then coming to him for gender related issues. So uh, so again, I'm not, I, I don't know from my from from my memory, and this could be all wrong, um, but I, I think with those studies that you were mentioning, I think it's a case of the the autism diagnosis was a concrete thing, and then they were exploring gender related issues. Um, and and I think now with the explosion of trans identification and transition. I think we're going to have to do that in a retrospect, like in the, in the other direction. It's like, okay, we have all these trans people. Is there also an autistic trajectory um, that, that that's, that's here as well? Um, so it could be that we just, we will 180 those things. Yeah. I, I think part of why I do wonder is, um, you know, I'm also diagnosed with autism. Um, it, it came a lot later. Uh, I think I was diagnosed I was maybe 22 um, but I had, you know, had the symptoms for a while and, uh, you know, I got diagnosed, you know, not really physically diagnosed with gender dysphoria, I guess, kind of officially, um, you know, a lot younger, but, um, you know, I'd struggle, it struggled with some of the issues of like the, uh, you know, social awkwardness and, you know, it, it, it does make me think back. I, I also had, you know, I was very like extroverted and, you know, everybody's friend when I was like really young and then you know about puberty I'm sorry my dog is whining um it, it I think about puberty yeah it, it became much more awkward and you know I kind of fell behind socially and um you know I didn't really have a lot of friends and then it became like you know clinging on to not probably the right friends and um but you know I've had you know my professionals who diagnosed me kind of like look at this and look at the interactions and stuff which is another benefit of like you know going to get diagnosis and going to like um see a therapist is that you can kind of explore like how these things interact and you know my main problem is like more like sensory stuff like 
you know, noise and, excuse me, uh, like noise and you know, just like chaotic life, like collapsing on me, I guess. Um, I, I guess I kind of do um, wonder a little bit if like, you know, some of that like extreme bodily dysphoria, like was also like impacted by this autism because I just remember, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <You're good. laughs> I remember like, <laughs> just, just a puppy. Uh, I, I just remember like when I wear like my binder or like, um, and I didn't really get a binder till later on, but I just remember like this, this intense feeling of like extreme discomfort and like wanting to like crawl on my skin. And it's very, it's very much like, um, kind of what I'm like just really overwhelmed I kind of experience a similar feeling and it's just like um you just want to like tear your skin off kind of feeling it's it's really unpleasant but um in there yep yeah, I remember that feeling <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, to go one, just to, to, to riff off what you were just saying is I, I've kind of come to come to again, what I call physical dysphoria is I was hyper fixated on my chest. It was just like, so absolutely should not have been there. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, it's again, call it, call it dysphoria. That's what I always understood dysphoria to primarily be was just how, um, how wrong I felt certain aspects of my body were. And so, um, and I'm realizing, I think, I think what a lot, and this is also brand new, so um, I could could be um, totally inaccurate in this, but but I'm starting to wonder if it was more like a sensory fixation um, that 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 led me to that kind of obsessive, what I what I call dysphoria um, was was a more of a sensory uh, obsession with with how my body was and needing it to to change. Um, but but why why did it cause the relief? That's the curious thing. Is like the sound of my voice doesn't doesn't sh shock me like it used to like having a flat chest feels so right like there's i don't continually seek changing my body now um so so that's the part where like i don't know i no longer have physical uh sensory fixations on my own body i'm, I'm obviously like you were saying like environmentally i'm very very sensitive to um uh and I used to just think I had social anxiety that wasn't really social anxiety, but that was more environmentally triggered anxiety. But now I'm realizing, oh, it's it's sensory overload is what I'm experiencing. And I definitely experience that in my surroundings still, but I no longer feel that about my body like I used to. Um, so I think that's kind of a it's kind of an interesting um, facet of all this. Yeah, I feel like, you know, all the, you know, overwhelming sensations I've, you know, felt in the past that also led to this you know i had a prior diagnosis of a sensory integration dysfunction which now is probably a misdiagnosis because like they just didn't even like test for autism because it wasn't like on their mind back in 2006 or whenever that was but um all those like feelings have kind of gotten a little better i think since transitioning maybe it's like not having to wear this like really restrictive clothing and you know, having to be like super uncomfortable all the time. I think it just kind of like amplifies everything. And it's, it's, I'd like to know more about that interaction. Um, I know that the, the clinic I went to, um, I guess more of like a research center that I went to to get uh, this diagnosis, um, you know, they did explore like, you know, how it might you know, affect the gender dysphoria and, you know, all that. And they, they pretty much ruled that it, at least by their like regard that it didn't have much like impact on me like i you know 
I know that some of the reason that autism is a differential diagnosis because of, uh, you know, the tendency to like have sort of obsessive behavior over like maybe certain characters or, you know, not being able to differentiate between like um, things you like and things you want to be and who you are kind of things, um, you know, uh, but I didn't really have any of those interactions. So they kind of just said, oh, they're, you know, they might have like, you know, some side-by-side -side things of discomfort, but like they're two separate things. And, you know, I just, I would like to know if there's more to that, you know, like, yeah. I think there's, there's definitely more to it. It would be an interesting research field, right? Yeah, yeah. for sure. We need someone to, to dig in and really research that. You know, what that like connection my... is right it's something i've become yeah. very curious about too just just because it's there is so much overlap and i could totally see how from what i do understand about autistic autistic traits it it totally makes sense that that could be um experienced as a kind of gender dysphoria and it's so hard to articulate to anybody else you know like we always stumble with the with over the words and i mean i think that's why we have these catchphrases like well i just felt like i was born in the wrong body but it mm -hmm. The, some of those catchphrases have gotten us into more trouble than than it's been worth maybe right because it people have taken that a little bit too literally <laughs> literally yeah <laughs> but it's because it's hard for for anyone to understand why someone would voluntarily remove parts of their body like it, it sounds totally nuts but when you experience it it's almost like my my mind had mapped a body that was different from my actual body and and the way my body had mapped that i should it mapped it as a flat chest so having anything mm -hmm. on my chest felt like it was something that was just kind of stuck to my body that shouldn't be there oh yeah i like i didn't find like binders until a little bit later because they they really weren't a thing when i much when i first was like you know buying them when i was like i don't know i i used like sports bras for a long time i'd get like the very very smallest ones i could possibly find i was also very like I was very underweight for a long time so like it'd be like extra smalls and just like you know I'd wear like an undershirt on top of that so no one could see like the lines of it so they couldn't tell I was wearing one and you know it just I feel like I was layering up so much just like there was just so much discomfort and you know I tried like the ace bandages and that was just hell on earth uh <laughs> I would never recommend that to anybody um it's just like there's a lot of like reasons to be like really you know have this discomfort like i used to be really uncomfortable about how my arms sat against my body because it like emphasized like curves i'd always like walk like <laughs> this and you know i was very <clears throat> conscious of like like how i took steps and you know anything outside of that i just felt like really like vulnerable like if if the wind was blowing and like clothing was sticking to me i just like automatically very overwhelming and just like set me into like overdrive and like I don't know it, it's really hard to compare this experience to other like you know trans people because it, you know I didn't really know any others I was pretty much the only one um I maybe knew like of another one we were never like friends and there's you know so there's really nothing to compare like hey is this is this distress what you feel is this normal or is this something else? You know, is this the sensory thing or what is it? You know, so it's, it's difficult. And, um, you know, I, I also kind of wonder if, you know, 
it's kind of unavoidable that we, you know, acknowledge there's a lot of uh, kids nowadays that are, you know, saying they have autism, they're saying they're trans, they're saying this and that. So it's, you know, I think we're seeing a lot more of a correlation than maybe there necessarily is um, because they're not like seeing therapists. They're very against that. So they won't go get diagnosed with anything. That's, I think it's a very complicated situation all around seeing what the, the connections are here. <laughs> it's kind of a snowball effect too, right? I mean, if you, you know, because there is this correlation between autism and gender dysphoria, the more trans identified people you're seeing in these autism groups or forums, then the others with autism are going to be exposed to the ideology and right. So I just kind of, it's, and I've seen that in, you know, in autism circles, people are saying that, you know, autism advocacy groups are becoming very queer theory based and and a lot of that ideology has crept in and i've heard similar things in intersex communities and forums that you know there's a lot a lot more people with intersex conditions are are um adopting the the trans ideology and um calling themselves non-binary and though i think potentially maybe have if anybody have more the most legitimate reason to to uh, refer to a non-binary identity maybe somebody with <laughs> with a dsd but um but yeah so these ideas are just kind of they found out and have taken over advocacy groups and organizations and other circles as well yeah um and you know with my own career as well um you know i work with i often work with kids i work in mental health facility and um i work with inpatient care and you know i i see a lot of kids and uh i would say maybe realistically 85 percent of them claim to be trans um less of them claim to be autistic as well they're not reporting that um we do have a few that are reporting um like did a few that are reporting you know being um like having Tourette's or other sorts of conditions that are not diagnosed and you know obviously in a inpatient care facility we are very uh strict about making sure that we're not putting anything as a diagnosis if it's only reported and there's no like record of it um so i i don't it's it's really hard to say if if uh that experience has made me feel um more certain that these people are maybe like there's some sort of differential diagnosis that's that's appearing or if they're like purposefully sort of mis mis misinterpreting um it's interesting the ones that you brought yeah. up you know like the the um Tourette's tics and those you know those various things you just listed off are, are ones that that um psychotherapists all over the world are saying they're seeing more of that pop up in their practice of young people coming in saying you know demonstrating certain tics or um, OCD diagnosis so they're they're um there's a lot of concern, um, legitimate concern that the kids are picking this up on social media, like TikTok. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. Um, I think at least from my perspective, you know, I work with kids and adults. Um, we don't see this with adults. Um, it's maybe, I, I think in my time working there, I've seen maybe two or three, um, that identified as trans or that they were, you know, claiming DID or whatever, you know, people do come in and they're just like oh i'm so ocd like that's i don't really consider that part of it um but you know with our paperwork and you know with our staff we only acknowledge 
pronouns in the kits for a good reason, you know, um, because it's about 80, 85% of them claim to have different pronouns. They change throughout the day. They change day to day. They, you know, change their gender and expression. Like every single, you know, time we get together as a group, we have to ask their pronouns because it's probably changed. We have to ask their name because it's probably changed. Um, like when I first got hired on the, the CEO came to us, you know, our little new people table, um, came to us and said that that was like, he specifically mentioned that was something we're gonna have to deal with is that, you know, the kids will change their names and their pronouns every single day. And, you know, I was like, you know, already kind of aware that that's sort of a thing, but I, you know, didn't really work with kids previously. So I kind of underestimated exactly the power of that statement that they're going to change it every single day um, because it's, you know, working there every single, pretty much every single day, you know, you know, the kids will be asking for you to write their name differently on the board and, um, you know, with, between groups, they'll even change their like gender and they'll, you know, start ticking around each other and, um, you know, they'll, they'll have like pseudo seizures and it's, exhausting i think to work with the kids because of that um like again we don't really see that with adults like it's very occasional they're usually like younger they're like 18 19 um you know they usually cluster all these diagnoses together they're clustering the ocd they're clustering the, the did and then the tourettes and the seizures and and all that um it's very it's very obvious um when they're doing that because they obviously they don't know the feature, like the atypical like features. Um, like, you know, you don't see people having seizures and like gurgling on TV, which is a thing that they, people who have seizures always do is they, you know, gurgle. So it's like, you know, and I, it, it's bizarre to me that people can say like, yes, these people are faking, you know, we know this and, you know, here's why, but like being trans is something you don't touch. You know, we don't talk about that at work. We don't talk about, you know, people faking being trans. You fake, you, you talk about them faking seizures. Like, you know, staff will go in the back room and be like, oh my God, this, this person, you know, had a seizure quote unquote last night, freaked everyone out. And, you know, but you don't, you don't talk about the pronouns. You don't talk about the changing gender. You don't talk about that as like um, some like fake diagnosis. Like, it's just something you don't, you don't say it's like crossing a line. It's you know, I, I don't understand why this is the one condition that we make exceptions for all the time, like clinically and like, you know, medically, like, you know, what other condition are you going to have where you don't have an evaluation first? You know, if you have, you know, if you're like having seizures, they're not just going to give you, you know, medication and say, oh, it must be epilepsy Go on your way. Like they're going to do scans and they're going to like, you know, do a thorough examination to make sure it's not something else. I don't understand why this is the one thing we can't touch, you know, like that's, that's very effective activism. Yeah. yeah. With, with, with your colleagues in there, do, do you get the, the impression that they, that they actually believe that the trans thing is the real one? Oh, okay. Okay. No. <laughs> they just all have to pretend as such. Yes. Okay. Uh, Cause I'm not out, you know, I don't, I don't tell people that I'm trans. I don't, you know, I, I, I never do like, half my friends don't know you know i just that's a very like low-key thing and i think for good reason i passed pretty well i have a decent beard uh 
you know, I don't have like a strange voice and I'm, I'm pretty average height, I would say shorter average. Um, but like, so I, I feel like I kind of live in a, like a, a cis world, you know, where I'm, I'm around people who, you know, are talking as if there's no trans people around and, you know, it's very like the, the vibe of it is very frustrated, um, exhausted, um, just sort of like, you know, that, that unspoken thing, like there was a, you know, a patient who came in recently who, you know, all piercings and they had like something going on with their eyebrows. Um, that was like strange. Uh, and you know, instantly, like we're all like eyeing each other, like, okay, we got to ask the pronouns. Um, so we went over sure enough, you know, they have the, they, them, and all those pronouns. And, uh, so, you know, we pass along this information to our staff so that, you know, people are using the, the right ones with them. And, you know, the, <laughs> I had, the, I don't know why I ended up with that duty. And every time I let someone know, there was just this huge sigh of just exhaustion, just like, ugh, just like again, and, you know, I was passing it off to the, the next uh, staff and it's, um, you know, he, he's passing it off to the other person who's working. He's like, oh, this is what we're going to have to deal with. And I was like, okay, that's, that's the vibe here. Like it's, it's sort of just like, everyone's kind of tired of it. Um, and that's what the adults do. Like the, the kids, my, I remember my first day working with the kids, um, you know, they showed me their pronoun list and there's several crossed out cause they're changing um you know and it, it was kind of like a like a, a very low-key thing of saying like you know because they don't know me they they're like well you know these things change all the time uh here's our policies about it um here's what you tell them this and here's why we do this because you know you'll never know if someone will just correct you or someone will go into a meltdown and you know it's just the things they were saying are very like you know I don't think activists would be very happy to hear um, how people in the mental health field kind of actually feel when no one's listening. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of these people probably post, you know, as allies all day, but, you know, in real life, it's, I think the general just is that people are kind of over it. <clears throat> I'm over it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and there's there's still lots of debate about, because it sounds like the three of us had a similar kind of dysphoria. I don't know if any two people ever experienced it exactly the same, but we we all had a you know early childhood experience anyway. And I think there's gonna there's still debate about even what that is. But that aside, I think one of the values that we have as trans people is to at least be able to say there's something different happening now with some of these kids, like you know that ROGD phenomenon that seems similar to like those ticks that you're talking about and, and the OCD and the DID and all these other diagnoses that these kids are picking up. Um, there, that there's, there's this new phenomenon happening and, and the clinicians are afraid. I think that lots of clinicians see it, but they're afraid to break the social contract that we have, right? We have a social contract as trans people in the world that people are going to use our pronouns and, and respect us in that way. But we have to be able to break some of those rules in order to identify this group of people and actually ask questions and, and, and investigate that and, and 
see that for what it is, right? That, that mm-hmm. just the amount of um, the amount of dissonance that clinicians, I felt it, you probably felt it, that we feel when we where our clinical judgment is in conflict with these these social rules that we're not supposed to ask certain questions um, of trans people, and and so we're not able to provide safe, competent care. It's, it, it definitely affects other patients too. Um, you know, I think people sort of see like online, they'll be interacting with somebody and it says like, oh, I'm 16 or whatever. And it's kind of still a very theater- theoretical kind of like projection of what this person might be depending on the person's, you know, experience with like a 16 year old. Um, you know, and I kind of felt like that was probably the case for me is that, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, this person's 16. They don't take them too seriously and whatever. And like, you know, you still end up in an argue, argument with them and, you know, go down a rabbit hole there. But, you know, now that I've actually worked with these kids and I see them like all the time, I'm like, you know, it kind of puts it into perspective, like who's that person behind the screen and like, what's, what's really going on here? Cause um, I would not ever trust any of these kids to give like, you know, an accurate, like, diagnosis to me like I would never take these kids seriously I like it working with these kids it kind of it blows my mind that there is ever a circumstance where someone can get medical care at that age as the kind of people that they are that you know they are not like you know their judgment is not like accurate like I don't think that every single one is like faking it on purpose I don't think that they're being necessarily disingenuous. I notice a lot of um, patterns with a lot of these kids that are changing up their pronouns as, you know, there's a lot of like abuse in the home. Um, you know, there's a lot of like bullying and stuff. Like, you know, I, I think that a lot of them are making genuine mistakes that, you know, they're feeling really bad about themselves and they're feeling bad about their bodies and, you know, they're, they're uncomfortable and they don't know how to express that. So they latched onto this thing that they keep seeing over and over, you know, they think, hey, this person is uncomfortable with themselves. That's my experience. I'm uncomfortable. And so they're latching onto this and they're, you know, I, I don't understand why there's no questioning that. Like, like, hey, like, why are you uncomfortable? There's, there's none of that. It's just, oh, you're uncomfortable. You say you're trans, you say you're this. Let's just, you know, clearly the way to solve this is to get you medical care. You know, I just, I cannot fathom that happening to any of the kids that I've, I've seen and worked with. It's, you know, it kind of blows my mind to like, be put in perspective actually seeing it you know it's like you know i don't obviously want these kids to suffer with anything i don't want them to be uncomfortable but i don't think it's right that we just blindly accept what they say when we wouldn't accept anything else they say you know it's like i want the best for these kids i want them to you know have productive lives and i just don't think that you know we're doing them any justice by you know just saying okay here you go you know, let's explore what this distress is. And like, even if it is right for them that they're, you know, they should transition and later in life, you know, you know, go on and they'll be happy. But like, I don't understand what's the problem with questioning it and like, you know, making sure, you know, so that this person doesn't go on and like, oh, was I sure? Was I even ready? Like, you know, it's not just about like, oh, is this person right for it? Is, is this person ready for it? Is this person you know, going to benefit from it, you know, because the answer might be no. And, you know, these kids, like, you know, a lot of them have a lot of issues and I just think they need better care, you know. I've noticed this, it's almost like this culture where they, um, 
where where you're you're only afforded empathy and care and support and attention and love based on a diagnosis. Like if you have a diagnosis to offer, it's like this is what I have. Mm-hmm. But just but just your everyday like struggles and like the um, you know, like these kids are obviously coming from you know terrible home environments. They've got whatever else going on that's just normal adolescence that that people need love and support. It, it almost seems like the only a- avenue to attention and love and support and empathy and care is is to provide a diagnosis or a system or a symptom pool. It's like this is what this is the currency that I have to provide in exchange for you know love and attention and care. And it's very it's very dark. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah, lots of them, you know, they're coming from this bad home life where they're probably not getting the attention, you know, they're, um, you know, a lot of them come from like foster care and, um, you know, a lot of them are coming from like single parent homes or, you know, homes where a lot of their other family members have left in some manner or another. Um, you know, I think they're kind of like, trying to search for that like identity and you know that's a very critical period to do that is searching for your identity like i am definitely not the same person i thought i was when i was 16 you know i'm I'm not even the same person i was at 21 so it's i don't know it's it's hard to describe like um it's very bizarre coming from this experience of you know growing up knowing exactly like who i was like in terms of like you know, what sex I thought I was, um, or that I become somehow. Um, and then like, see these sort of like trivial pronouns being thrown around. And like, you know, some people, I get the feeling, sort of associate that like, oh, that's the whole trans community, because that's LA or C, especially, you know, with the kids that I work with, like, I don't think I've seen an actual, you know, something that I recognize as like, actually trans. I don't think I've seen someone like that come in. So, you know, this is all their exposure is just the pronouns and the, you know, the weird other diagnoses that are going on and like the bad home life. And, you know, they're going to grow out of it because, you know, we don't see them when they come in as adults and they're not doing the same thing. You know, they've already grown out of it at that point. You know, we have a lot of return patients and, you know, a lot of them come back in, they're completely someone else. Um, so I, I think there's maybe sort of a, I think people aren't taking it quite as seriously as it is. Um, you know, they're like, oh, the kids are just playing around, but this is kind of the image that people have of what it means to be trans when this is all they see. And, you know, that kind of sucks for like, imagining like kids like that were in my, that are in my, like, you know, um, kids that are in my place of like how I felt and sort of comparing them to this and like how like devastating that might be to, you know, people who might be finding out their label and um, maybe like trying not to adopt the uh, trans label for the same reason that I did. Like, oh no, this isn't me. And like, you know, nowadays you'd see that label and see these people and they'd be like, you know, no, that's definitely not me. And then they still don't know what's wrong with them, you know? So like, I, yeah, and I, what you were saying earlier about, you know, are they faking it? And maybe the occasional one is is kind of putting on airs, but I, I don't think most of them are faking it. And one of the things that it's being compared to, like with the, um, like sometimes I think it's it's very much sort of ide- ideological that they're picking up stuff on online and it serves some internal purpose for them. But they're um, with the, the 
comparison with those like the ticks and stuff that are that kids are picking up on on TikTok and other places, they're comparing that to um, conversion disorder. I don't know how familiar you you are and how much you've encountered conversion disorders. You know whereby emotions are are unconsciously converted into physical symptoms. And they're saying that some of these ROGD cases could be a kind of conversion disorder as well, which would be a very real experience. It's not like they're faking it. It happens at, a, at an unconscious level. Um, but that's one of my curiosities is how much of this new ROGD cohort is actually conversion disorders, which you know is a very different treatment pathway. I, I think the problem is it's also hard to tell. and. Um, I think that's a huge problem because, you know, if you can't tell if this person has these symptoms because of something else that's going on in their life or because of another condition, you know, I don't know how we can feel comfortable as a society providing kids medical care. Um, you know, I definitely would not, you know, say surgery is probably appropriate for these cases. Like, um, like I could see in, in at least my opinion, I see hormones as being partially an option in late adolescence. Um, I think it probably would have been a good option for me. I'm, I'm very cut and dry. Like I didn't have any abuse history. I didn't, you know, really have any like obvious differential diagnoses. I didn't have, you know, personality disorder. Like, well, I mean, you can't diagnose a childhood anyways, but, um, you know, I think too many of these cases are very ambiguous and I don't think we can make like a, a singular ruling as far as, you know, yes or no for medical care for these people. And, you know, I, I, it, it concerns me that some of these people are getting medical care without evaluations, even as children. Um, that's kind of like, I don't know, like I could see the argument for adults saying that, um, they can kind of make their own decisions. They can kind of, um, you know, if they want to skip the therapist and that's kind of their own fault, but um, I don't understand how that's happening to teens, um, especially with this uh, experience that I've had seeing these teens in like really ambiguous like circumstances. Obviously it's not ambiguous to me, but um, maybe to someone else who's trying to diagnose these kids, um, it might be a little ambiguous. I they usually provide a, a diagnosis um, in the paperwork for like if, you know, they have depression or anxiety. And, you know, I think I've only seen a couple actual diagnoses for um, gender dysphoria before. And it was very obvious to me that it was, you know, th that person is definitely not trans. Maybe they do have dysphoria, but, you know, they'd be the kind of person who's maybe using she as a, you know, female individual. And that's kind of it's very very uh it's pretty obvious that that's not um probably gender dysphoria if you don't actually have the aversion to your sex um it's i think it's really hard on doctors too <laughs> i just i i don't i don't envy um the doctors that have to work with these kids um a lot of them are very old um a lot of them aren't involved in you know the politics online so they have no idea like what's going on out there they're just you know a lot of them they mean well and they're just doing the best they can and um you know it's kind of a, a shame that they're not like you know more aware of what's going on so they can kind of realize that like there might be something else going on with this kid you know maybe not everyone who's reporting um is reporting accurately um yeah it's 
I think it's a very complicated situation and I don't think that we can say for certain one way or the other whether um, care is appropriate for any age or any um, like kind of person. Um, I, I would say even in, in my case as a kid, if I had gone in to receive medical care at like 16, even though I'm a very standard case, I think that it would have been very reckless to just go with that, you know, um, just out of like the immaturity of children and, um, you know, the kind of wishy-washiness, even though I was very certain internally, and I tried to express that as much as I could, that I was, I was very certain that I knew who I was, um, you know, I, I don't think we can expect any kind of clinician or outside body, any mental health system to recognize that and just assume that this case is um, accurate, you know? So what, what would you like to see happen in, in gender clinics? Like, it sounds like you're advocating for, for more assessment or what, um, um, what I, needs to happen? Personally, I've, I've never seen anything good come out of informed consent. Um, I would not, um, you know, again, it's just, you know, my opinion. I, I would not um, say that informed consent is a good uh, method to treat any person despite age with uh, gender dysphoria, especially like clinics like Planned Parenthood are kind of dropping the ball. <laughs> um, I would like mandatory, ugh, sorry, uh, I would like mandatory evaluations, um, you know, for some period of time. Like, um, I wouldn't say that has to be like a standard, like, oh, you have to be evaluated for like two years before you start anything. Like, you know, I think it's very case to case. Like I only required, um, I think two visits to get my initial letter for hormones. Um, but again, I, I was pretty standard case. I didn't have any other conditions or anything. Um, you know, I, I didn't have any concerns that any clinician could see even with her, I think very valuable and um, very thorough evaluation. Uh, but I think that especially clinicians who are less experienced should require a little more um, I think there should be special training um, to recognize differential diagnoses, uh, to recognize gender dysphoria in adults and children, um, recognize the other symptoms that are not necessarily considered dysphoria as well. I think that's kind of understated that, you know, gender dysphoria is not a synonym for being trans of any kind. Um, so obviously there's going to be other, you know, symptoms. There's other things that are going on that are very like characteristics of being characteristic of being trans, um, especially like you know transsexual. Um, I I think that there should absolutely be a uh, a period of living as that sex before you uh, transition. Um, I know there's a lot of people who disagree with that, especially for trans women who they're saying you know it's a danger to um, try to live and dress as a, a woman out in the world when you look like a man or you know, things like that. But I, I just think that, you know, hormones are not a magical cure or anything. They're not going to transition you overnight. Um, so I think it's very important to be committed to that role and to know that like, you know, you're in this, whether or not you're attractive or whether or not you're, you know, going to pass, like, that's not really the, you know, the point of it. You're not going into transition saying, oh, this is only going to work if I look 100% like, like this, like, you know, it, you understand that it's a progress and you're going to feel better. Um, so I, I think that uh, um, living is your desired sex 
um, having a thorough education through a um, through a therapist of uh, maybe like kind of telling patients like I was told about you know what might cause someone to think they're dysphoric or think that they're trans when they're not um, and I, I would get rid of predominantly get rid of uh, informed consent clinics there's just they're a mess and they're they're overcrowded and they don't have time for you know patients like they should to provide appropriate care like you know my friends that's now a detransition you know they've been through the Planned Parenthood system they've been through other informed clinics um they you know these clinics often don't even remember their name they don't like recognize them you know they're seeing so many patients in a day that it's just like there's not even time to provide accurate care there's not time to be thorough and you know unfortunately my can my uh my friend ended up with uh um, cervical cancer um possibly related to the testosterone but we're not really sure because you know it's you know there's not a whole lot of research on it unfortunately um it probably would have been caught a lot earlier if it was not um going through Planned Parenthood you know because there's their appointment system's really bad and you know they just they're not very careful you know so I, I think there's a lot of dangers to that you would think that autism screening would be um kind of standard too if someone doesn't already have a diagnosis knowing that that correlation is is so strong and well established that that they would do um an assessment for autism i i would also argue um an assessment for certain personality disorders um such as borderline personality disorder which is what my friend had uh, well has you know um that probably led to them you know kind of lacking that sense of identity um, in their life and you know the obviously history of abuse um, in that situation that may have led to feelings of dysphoria um, you know I don't think that they already like talk about it so I won't go into too much detail on their behalf but um, you know just like abuse histories that might have to do with um, sexual characteristics and um, you know like the schizotypal personality disorder or schizotypal I, I really hate that pronunciation uh, they, you know, also lack a sense of identity, um, maybe not necessarily, a um, abuse history, but, you know, I, I think that sense of identity is very important. Um, histrionic personality disorder, uh, I think needs to be evaluated. I know that's very, uh, um, that's a very touchy subject. I know that a lot of people don't like to diagnose that or look for that because it's very stigmatizing, but I think that's very important because I, I, at least from what I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of those features in a lot of the activists today and a lot of the people who are claiming to be trans or dysphoric that maybe are not. Um, I think that, you know, personality disorders are obviously my interest, but I'm seeing a lot of those features uh, with those three personality disorders that are kind of popping up everywhere. Um, I seem to not be able to escape them at this point. Yeah. Um, I know when I went through the system, there was screening for for all of that. I mean, it seemed to be much more thorough in its mental health screening. I had to, prior to surgery, I had to see a psychologist um, and did all kinds of screeners for personality disorders and different different kinds of disorders. And I mean, if nothing else, it's peace of mind no, you know, for myself, knowing that I don't have anything other than the gender dysphoria and, and mm -hmm. you know, kind of garden variety depression and anxiety, which has been better over the years. But um, yeah, I don't know why they don't do all of that standard standardized screening anymore. 
Yeah, I I feel the same. I, I would have probably benefited from, as you said, my own peace of mind if I had had some a little bit more thorough evaluation for their like conditions. But you know, obviously that's not why I saw the therapist. So you know, I, I went to her for two sessions and I felt like it was thorough, and I'm still very pleased with it. Um, but you know, at the time I was questioning whether or not it was like dyslexic or something, because um, I had that diagnosis of uh, sensory integration dysfunction. Um, you know, I just, it didn't feel quite right because it didn't like encompass all the symptoms that I was having. And I brought this up to her, but she was like, oh, well, we'll address that separately. And I never ended up going back to address that until um, very, very much later. Um, but, you know, it would have been nice to like have an assessment for, you know, my anxiety and depression and, you know, maybe get treatment for those other things at the same time. I, you know, I, I think that's very important to get care for those things early on. Like I, uh, when I got screened for autism, they also screened other conditions. And I felt like this was very, this is a good evaluation. They, you know, assessed like my IQ, they assessed um, anxiety and depression, dissociative symptoms. Um, they assessed like, oh man, they performed so many tests on me. It was, it was six days of like hours worth of testing. I couldn't even tell you anything that I got done at this point. <laughs> But, you know, I, I literally tested in the 99.8th percentile for anxiety, and that would have been really easy, like, that would have been really nice to know earlier on um, that that was that severe. They, they asked me if I had ever been to prison because <laughs> of my anxiety levels, um, but uh, and I, I have not, by the way. Um, it, it just, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't say that everyone should just get evaluated for everything all the time. That's really like, that's a really tedious thing to do. Um, especially if you don't have like symptoms for something or, you know, whatever, but like, I think in the process of, you know, deciding whether or not someone should medically transition and especially permanently, especially with surgery, I think that might be an important component. That's just, I think one thing we have to just do, you know, in order to get there. And like, I, I don't see how that's a, a big problem because I remember when I was when I was transitioning like medically I I wasn't upset about having to wait for my appointment you know I, I was just like I was really excited I was like oh we're, we're taking another step we're getting there you know we're getting closer and you know I see people today they argue with me saying that you know having anybody wait and having to go get an evaluation and then wait for an appointment like that that is life-saving time and you know i I never saw it that way. I saw it as like, you know, I'm taking steps and it's really exciting and I'm going to get there. And, you know, every step is another step towards, you know, becoming more like how I feel like should be. So I, I just, I don't get the whole aversion for, you know, receiving care. You know, it, I, I kind of see the same thing with people just talking about going to inpatient facilities or, you know, even outpatient facilities, going to see doctors, going to see therapists, they, they don't want to do it because someone else they know had a bad experience or because they had a bad previous experience or, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a tragedy because in that like denial of going to get these services, they're also kind of discouraging others from doing the same. Um, you know, and I, I'm very passionate. Oh, sorry. Ed. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah. you're noticing that overlap between histrionic personality disorder and gender dysphoria. And I'm wondering how much those histrionics have influenced the culture around it in general, you know? 
I, I, like, I don't want to, I don't want to have a, a bias against like certain conditions, and I don't want to like participate in like you know stigmatizing because I understand these are a lot of, a lot of things I can't control, but you know, I, it, it, it kind of you know the histrionic personality kind of it, it irks me in that in that kind of way where it's very uh, um, domineering and very like, um, you know, follow me, follow the leader kind of kind of attitude it seems at least when i'm picking up from it so it's i think it's a big influence here um especially with those who are maybe being purposely disingenuous you know all good points yeah well thanks so much for uh coming and chatting with us it's been great to meet you yeah no problem thanks for having me i hope that was a decent hope i wasn't too uh awkward or anything not at all you're great it's yeah. a good conversation yeah great to hear your point of view yeah you seem like a pretty uh pretty grounded individual i hope so i just you know i feel like i have a lot to say and never enough time to say it and you know so i, I tend to talk a lot and i apologize if that was the case <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole point of the podcast is to get you talking <laughs> I could I could talk for hours and hours about everything. <laughs> I hope you'll you'll keep in touch. Mm, yeah. Likewise. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support. <laughs>